Uh, just to remind you, and I forgot to mention this, uh, we have been praying for um, a young lady named Emma uh, who has brain cancer around 35 years old. We need to continue to pray for her. <clears throat> She's uh, deteriorating, and uh, when my son and his wife were here during Christmas, they were able to go down and spend some time with, with her a couple of times. So uh, she's sort of gotten a temporary reprieve. They put her on a new medication, which is not going to heal her, but it's just sort of bought her a little bit of time. And, um, but their assessment was that uh, it was good to see her slightly up from where they were, she was last time they saw her. But uh, again, she's, you know, it's not going to, to cure her situation. So... Um, because of the, her feeling a little bit better, uh, she was not open to talking about the Lord. So isn't it interesting how people, you get that sort of that false hope uh, because you feel a little better um, with your disease. And I can understand it to an extent, but, um, you know, we're going to talk this morning about hope, the real kind of hope. Uh, so please continue to lift them up, Emma, Gina. Um, and also just to mention my daughter, Gabriella, they're still kind of in the throes of dealing with their loss of their son earlier last year, and um, we are continuing to pray for them. <clears throat> they are actually getting on a plane tomorrow to go visit her sister, my daughter, and their family in Italy. So praise God for that. Um, so they're looking forward to that trip, and we pray that God will bless them as they go. So, all right, First Peter chapter 1. Let's uh, open there and let's read verses 1 through 12. I'm not sure if we'll get through all 12 verses this morning, but that is our goal. And we'll have the words on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Uh, there's some paper Bibles uh, in the cent on the center table uh, right behind the pole there. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials." that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word and we trust that you will minister to us and that you will speak to us in a powerful way, that you will open our hearts and our minds to hear and to receive all that you have for us as we sit under the teaching of your word. May your spirit have free reign in our hearts and our minds this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think one of the things that's always important to do with any Bible study when we get into a new book especially is to take a moment and look a little bit at the history and the setting. And the reason for that is not that you're going to be quizzed later on the date of the writing or that kind of thing, but because it helps us understand the comments that are made and what the writer is saying in light of the context he or she is living in during that period of time. Now, we may remember that around 32 to 34 AD is the time when Jesus was crucified. And so the three years prior to that is the time that the disciples were with Jesus. And then just a, a 50 days or so after Jesus was resurrected is when the day of Pentecost happened. So if you fast forward about 30 years from that point in time, which is really the entire time of the book of Acts, the book of Acts covers about the first 30 years of the life of the church, Peter is writing this epistle in about 63 or so AD. So that's about 30 years after uh, Jesus had been resurrected and, and after the day of Pentecost had happened. The Roman ruler Nero was ruling at this time and Nero was one of the most ruthless of all of the Roman rulers. He ruled from 55 to 68 AD. In July of 64, right around the time or just after the time Peter wrote this, Rome was burned to the ground and Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. Nero was feeding Christians to the lions at this point in time. In AD 65, Nero killed his wife because he was unhappy with her. And the manner of, of her death was that he bludgeoned her by kicking her to death. He took his next wife by executing her husband and took her to be his wife forcefully. He would take Christian prisoners into his garden, coat them with tar, tie them to a stake, and set them on fire. They were to be the light of the world, and he mocked them by making them light up his garden. He finally committed suicide in June of AD 68 after being declared public enemy number one by the Roman state. You see, the Roman government even couldn't tolerate the evil with which he ruled. Fifteen times in this letter, Peter refers to the term suffering using eight different Greek words, which all mean roughly the same thing, but it communicates the different aspects of suffering in the life of a believer. We know that at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, we find those words where Paul says, but now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul probably could be called the apostle of faith. 
John the apostle of love, but certainly Peter could be called the apostle of hope. Now, we want to take a moment to look at Peter's background because, you know, who was Peter? We know that Peter was one of the apostles. He was one of the twelve In fact, as I share a little bit about his background, I want you to reflect on who this man was and who he became as Jesus ministered to him and prayed for him and as the Holy Spirit came upon him. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone except the name of Jesus himself. No one speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter is recorded to have spoken. Jesus spoke more to Peter than to any other individual. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. And Peter was the only disciple who had the audacity to dare to rebuke Jesus. Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple, and yet Peter denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple, and Jesus addressed Peter at one point as Satan among the disciples, saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, since Peter is so prominent in the gospel records, it's it's worthwhile for us to remind ourselves of some of the important mentions uh, in various passages of scripture. You may remember when In the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Jesus woke up early in the morning and went out to pray, that Peter led the the party, the search and rescue party, so to speak, as he went out to find Jesus. They they wondered, where did Jesus go? And so in Mark chapter 1, we find that Peter led this little posse to go find Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, we find that Peter put his nets out at the direction of Jesus to bring in a massive catch of fish. Remember, he said, we fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus said, we'll throw them on the other side of the boat, which seemed absurd, but he did it. And then they brought in this incredible haul of fish. Peter went on a unique outreach trip with the other disciples. You remember they were sent out two by two as as the 12 were sent out the first time. Peter stepped out of the boat. Remember, he was the only one to do so during a raging storm. And he walked on the water toward Jesus, the only one to express or to demonstrate such bold faith. Peter was the one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter saw Jesus transfigured in glory up on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with James and John. And he saw Moses and Elijah there fellowshipping with Jesus. Peter was the one who asked Jesus how many times we should forgive somebody. He said up to seven times. The Jews, of course, thought three times was plenty. And of course, Jesus said, no, up to 70 times seven. Peter was the one who asked Jesus after the encounter with the rich young ruler what the disciples would receive for giving up everything to follow Jesus. Jesus, of course, said, God will reward you handsomely for following me. Peter was the one who insisted that Jesus would not wash his feet that night at the the last supper. Remember Jesus took the basin and the towel. He took the role of the master of the house and decided that he would wash their feet. And Peter said, no, Lord, I'm not worthy. 
And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you will have no part in me. And then he said, fine, then wash my head, my hands, my feet. Wash everything. And we see this boldness of Peter. Peter heard Jesus predict that that he would deny him three times. And remember, Peter replied, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. In fact, even if all of these pointing to his fellow disciples deny you, I will not deny you. Remember there in the garden, Peter was the one who cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, in boldness because they came with probably a thousand or so soldiers to arrest this one humble man, Jesus. And Peter thought he would be bold and attack the servant of the high priest. Peter was the one who ran with John the disciple to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection after hearing the report of the women that, remember, they did not believe. Peter was the one who received a personal visit from Jesus on Resurrection Day. And remember in John 21, Peter uh, received a public restoration of Jesus in front of the other disciples for his denial. We could go on. Peter had many other things. He Uh, In the book of Acts, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was the one who took the lead in raising up the 12th disciple to take Judas's place. Peter was the one who became the major spokesman for the first outreach of evangelism there on the day of Pentecost. He took his stand with the 12 and was filled with the Spirit and spoke in such a powerful way that 3,000 people came to Christ. Peter and John healed the lame man at the gate of the temple there in Acts chapter 3. Peter courageously defied the Sanhedrin as they told him to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And Peter presided over the grim task of dealing with the deception of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 8, Peter confirmed the preaching of the gospel to the Samaritans because remember, he and John were sent to validate that God was truly moving among those people as they had heard, as people had come to bring word to them. And then Peter healed and raised the sick girl in Lydda um, and Sharon uh, of Joppa. And Peter reached out to the Gentiles and realized the universal offer of the gospel there in Acts chapter 10. Why do we say all those things about Peter? Because Peter was a man who was transformed. When we look at Peter before the day of Pentecost and after the day of Pentecost, we see a very different man. We see a man who was changed by the grace of God. We see a man who was transformed by the person and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter begins this epistle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I don't think anyone would debate that Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The supreme importance of the apostles is suggested by the fact that the phrase Jesus Christ is attached to no other New Testament office. We do not read of teachers of Jesus Christ. We do not read of prophets of Jesus Christ. We do not read of evangelists of Jesus Christ. We only read of apostles of Jesus Christ. 
And then Peter says here, as he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, there's a map there, if you can bring that up, please, Mitch. Might be a little hard to read, but the yellow region in the top right-hand corner of your screen is modern-day Turkey. And it says here that he's writing to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is the same area where Paul spent his first and second missionary journeys up in that region. And this is a region now, as we have come to this period of time in AD 62 or 63, that the church is being scattered because of persecution. And down in the lower right-hand corner, you might be able to see Israel, Judea, Samaria, right down in the bottom right-hand corner. And so over the course of this 30 years of history, what's happened is the church has come under intense scrutiny and intense persecution. And given also uh, the range of Paul's ministry that he had been up in that region, up in Galatia, Cappadocia, and all of that, that there were many Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, who were scattered. And notice he calls them pilgrims. Pilgrims are temporary residents. They're sojourners. They're people who were just passing through. They're refugees, if you will. And so as he writes this letter to the people scattered throughout that region, uh, we believe that not only one letter was sent, but multiple copies of this same letter was sent. And that his desire, his intent was to encourage the believers who were scattered because of persecution. So everything we are going to read here was a letter that was sent to encourage the church at large. In fact, as we look at the way the Bible classifies things, this would be what we would call a general epistle. A letter that's just meant to generally encourage the body of Christ, whereas, of course, the Apostle Paul had to write some letters that were very corrective to churches that were having problems. This letter is written really to encourage people in their faith and to encourage them with what they are dealing with. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 11, he will say, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, then he goes on and he says, Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, people often sort of debate the whole thing about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Where is the Trinity mentioned? Well, if you look carefully in verses such as this one, you see right there clearly in verse 2, God the Father, God the Spirit, Jesus Christ. The Trinity is clearly mentioned right there. The Trinity, as we call it, is God the three-in-one. And it's, it's something we understand that we accept, but trying to explain the existence of the Trinity or how can God be three persons manifested in one presence is at best an enigma to us. We just understand it and accept it. God has within himself the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and each play a role. And as we've just 
concluded studying in the book of Revelation. We've seen throughout the book of Revelation how God the Father interacts with God the Son and God the Spirit. And notice here he says, uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is one of those things that we can talk about and we can explain to an extent. But elect means that they were chosen. It doesn't mean they were elected by an election, meaning a popular ballot or something like that. It means that God has elected or chosen them, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Trying to explain foreknowledge and election and predestination and all of that, we can define the words, we can talk about it. But at some point in time, we have to understand that man's will also becomes a part of the discussion. Because as the gospel is preached, and as we read about the gospel being preached, so often as it's preached, the words, whosoever will, and there's these calls that are given during the preaching of the gospel, especially in the scriptures, for people to believe on Jesus Christ. And so this is something that's a bit of a mystery. Some have described it as sort of two sides of the same coin. One side of the coin is God in his divine foreknowledge, and certainly if God is not omniscient, meaning that he knows all things, then certainly uh, he would know who is going to believe on him. And certainly God has chosen or he has elected. But sometimes as I hear people talk about this, they try to, in a sense, get into an argument and saying uh, that by, because God elected or chose or foreknew who would believe, that on the other hand, they then turn around and say something that is not in the scriptures, that all of those who are not elected, who have not believed, have been also predestined to hell. And I don't see that taught in the scriptures. It says, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a very rich verse that we could spend a lot of time trying to understand. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this should bring us great encouragement and great joy and great hope knowing that God cares about us and loves us so much to know who we are. And as the book of Ephesians says, that our names are written in the book of life since before the foundation of the earth. But also it says in sanctification of the Spirit. Now sanctification means to be set apart for holiness and purification Holiness unto God, purification made pure and clean by the righteous blood of Jesus. Consecration, to be commissioned or to be given a special role or job. And that implies to me and to us that each and every believer has a special role and job in the kingdom of God. And set apart, meaning we are not ordinary like everybody else. We belong to God. We are his special people, he will later call us in this book. And he says, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Obedience means to do what God wants us to do. It means to comply with what God wants us to comply with. Now, I made a note here back at the beginning It's interesting to me that, and I, I encountered this this past week, when you run into believers, 
sometimes you get sort of a different experience, right? Sometimes you run into believers and they're just filled with the Spirit and they're full of love and joy and it's just like no question that these people, this person you're talking to knows Jesus, that they've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. But then sometimes you run into believers who they're sort of ho-hum and dreary. Maybe we could describe them as religious people. But the fact of the resurrection, the fact of their redemption, the fact of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ just doesn't seem to be evident. The words are there, but the evidence of the transformation doesn't seem to be presenting itself to us. And what does that all mean? Well, I've learned not to, to have judgment about that toward people because God is the judge, not me, but it does cause me to wonder. When I run into people like Owen, as I mentioned earlier, or uh, other folks that I ran into in this church that I attended last week who just were sitting all around us and during short conversations say hello to one another or before or after the service, the number of people who just radiated Christ, I was just overwhelmed with that. And I bring all this up to say as we read this description here in verse 2, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We should consider our own salvation, the depth of our own salvation. How have I been redeemed? Have I been redeemed? What have I been redeemed from? What have I been redeemed unto? I've been saved from sin. I've been saved from the realm of the devil. I am not going to be held accountable for my sin before the throne of God because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. He has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no better news in the universe than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the question for us. Have I been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting that he would take that terminology which comes from the book of Leviticus where it talks about the sprinkling of the blood. And the sprinkling of the blood is mentioned in different ways in different situations. It's mentioned uh, on the priest to, to consecrate or to set apart the priest for the role of the ministry unto the Lord, and especially there in the holy place, and the holy of holies, in the temple. And when he says that we have been sprinkled of the blood of Jesus Christ, one of the roles of the priest was to go in and sprinkle or apply the blood to the mercy seat on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, so that when God looked down from heaven, and as he looked into the Ark of the Covenant, rather than seeing the elements that reminded him of the rebellion of mankind, the budded rod of Aaron where man has rebelled against the authority of God, the broken Ten Commandments where, where man has rebelled against the very word of God, and the little bowl, bowl of manna, which means that, that man complained and rebelled against the very provision of God for sustaining of life in the wilderness, that when that blood was sprinkled on the top of the mercy seat, the mercy seat was just the lid where the two angels' wings were spread out. 
that when the priest would sprinkle that blood, God would look down and would be satisfied because of the blood of the innocent lamb being sprinkled on the top of the mercy seat. And so when he says here, as Peter takes this imagery, Peter, a fisherman, not a scholar, Peter says the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is saying that we have been covered, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. The word multiplied means exactly that. It's not just like sort of giving you two pieces of bread, one's grace and one's peace. He's saying, no, grace to you and peace be multiplied. What peace? The peace with God that comes through salvation in Christ. The peace of God that we as believers now have and carry with us. We don't have to get riled up and out of sorts because of something that happens in the world, because of the news, because of some tragedy, because of an accident, whatever it might be. We don't have to get spun up about it. Do you know why? Because we have the peace of God. We have peace with God. And we have grace, charis. And grace and peace, Peter is saying here, increase in quantity, effect, and influence in our lives. In other words, we as believers in Jesus Christ, because of the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as God gives it to us, and he's given it to us at salvation, but he continually gives it to us, that we are growing in grace and growing in peace. In fact, he will say later, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 3 here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've finally gotten through those first two verses, and what does Peter do? He's blessing God. He's worshiping God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's where you are this morning, that you are blessing the name of God. You know, when we come to worship, let me just encourage you as we come on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights to come on time, not because we're sticklers about the clock, but because when worship begins, God begins to work in our lives and he speaks to us and he ministers to us and he plows that fallow ground of our hearts so that when the word comes, uh, that soil has been turned over so that the word, the seed of the word might come into our lives. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. Again, this is so packed. It's so rich. According to his abundant mercy, he's already talked about grace. He's talked about peace. He's talked about the sprinkling of the blood. So grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding what we do deserve. And he says, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. And the word to be begotten means to be born again. It means to be given new life. He has, he has begotten us again to a living hope. And it's the same idea that Jesus spoke in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus about, where he said, you must be born again. 
And he says, he has begotten us again to a living hope. Yes, you may be alive as a human being. But you're not spiritually alive. You're not alive to Christ until you've been born again with this living hope. And I love how Peter didn't just say hope. He said living hope. Hope that's alive. That means that there's life in us. There's life beyond what you and I carry around within us. You know, some days you may feel good. Some days you may not feel so good. Some days you may emotionally be doing well. Other days you may emotionally not be doing well. But we carry around in us the life of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope. Every day the hope of Jesus Christ is alive within us. And remember the word hope means a confident expectation of future good. It means that God will keep his word. God is not slack, Peter says, about his promises. God will keep his word. He has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This living hope comes to us from the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus says that God keeps his word. And if God raised his son from the dead, and we find all throughout the New Testament that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, promising us, and, and we don't have time to go there, but 1 Corinthians 15, that we also will be resurrected because Jesus was. We will get a resurrection body after we die. When we, are, when we depart from this earth, when we breathe our last, when we depart it's not into nothingness. We don't go into the grave and, and die and that's it. And that's the end of your existence, the end of your life, and it's all over. You see, from a human point of view, we might think that because we no longer see the person. But from God's point of view, we are now promised to, uh, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That the hope of eternal life is that when we cease breathing in this environment, we begin breathing in heaven in the presence of God. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living hope is an intense, confident expectation. Paul said in Philippians 1, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God never gives up on you, on me. And Peter knows this, right? Remember, he's the one who failed. He failed so many times in the presence of Jesus. And the reason I shared all those things with you about Peter's life is so that we would understand the things that Peter says aren't just, you know, things he says. He says them because of his experience with Jesus. Jesus allowed him to fail. As I said, Peter even rebuked Jesus once. And Peter still didn't learn the lesson because in Acts chapter 10, remember when Peter was up on the roof waiting for lunch to be prepared at Simon the Tanner's house, the Lord gave him that dream three times this the sheet came down and it had all, all sorts of unclean animals. And what did Peter say the first two times? He says, not so, Lord. I've, I've never eaten of anything unclean. And the Lord was saying to him, no, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And so even then, 10 years after the resurrection, 
he's saying to the Lord, not so, Lord. And you see, it was a journey for him. And that was 20 years before he wrote this. Now he's learned not to say no to the Lord. He has a living hope. And living hope builds every day, every week, every year. It grows and it continues to grow and it continues to live. You see, hope is not a sedative. Hope is not some platitude. It's not a rabbit's foot that we keep in our pocket. It's a shot of adrenaline, if anything. Hope moves us forward in life. Hope keeps us going when we feel like we can't keep going. Why? Because the future is that we are going to be in the presence of God. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker on cars. It says, no Jesus, no peace. That's the word N-O. No Jesus, no peace. And then it says, no, K-N-O, no Jesus, no peace. So a little play on words. If you don't have Jesus, you won't have peace. If you do have Jesus, you will have peace. Well, the same thing could be said of hope. If you don't have Jesus, then you won't have hope. But if you do know him, you will have hope. God alone can both... uh, God alone both can and will transform suffering into glory. And Peter's going to talk about suffering quite a bit as we go through this. In fact, Peter would probably be the epistle that the health, wealth, and prosperity people would shy away from the most because of the amount of suffering and the amount of hope that Peter talks about in light of the suffering that we go through in this life. In Romans chapter 5, we find these words. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What is Paul saying there? That the very presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives given to us by God during our salvation, that that very presence of the Spirit causes the hope in our hearts to be alive. If suffering today means glory tomorrow, then suffering becomes a blessing. Suffering becomes grace to us. Suffering ushers in the realization of hope. How would we understand light without darkness? How would we understand uh, joy and happiness without sorrow? And so blessing and glory come to us in the light of suffering. He says in verse 4, To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word inheritance, probably most of us on planet Earth, at least in the U.S., we think of a windfall profit from an estate. We think of a bunch of money or that kind of thing. But you see, an inheritance from God has nothing to do with money. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled. What is the inheritance we get? It's the fullness of the presence of God. 
You see, when the word blessing is used throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and let me just focus for a moment on the Psalms, when blessing is spoken of, it's most often referring to the presence of God himself. We think of blessing as something like having our bills paid, having no more cares in this world. But blessing and inheritance is not about those things. An inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, is the presence of God waiting for us. We've just talked about this in going through the book of Revelation, where as we get to heaven in chapters 21 and 22, remember we saw gold used as pavement there in heaven? The very thing that's so highly valued here on planet earth in heaven means nothing, it's dirt. An inheritance is the eternal blessedness found in the very presence of God. That's what God has for us. Ephesians 1 verse 13 reads as follows, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that God will keep his word that one day you and I will be delivered into his presence, and there we shall be forever and ever. He says we are, that, that, is, that pledge is incorruptible and undefiled. Incorruptible means it can't be destroyed. It can't be tainted. It can't be polluted. It won't expire. There's no expiration date like we experience here when you buy a product in the supermarket. You know this, you buy food, it goes bad after a certain point in time if you don't use it. But that does not apply to the blessings of God, that does not apply to the presence of God. Our inheritance with him is incorruptible and undefiled, it can't be destroyed, it can't be marred. Why? Because it's not of this world, it comes from the very throne of God himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed in his presence. Undefiled, unfading, not decaying, reserved or kept in heaven for you and for me. It's reserved from harm. It's reserved from danger. It's in heaven. Now, listen to what Matthew said in his gospel, Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Everything here on this earth will burn. Everything here on this earth is corruptible. Cars rust. Banks can go bankrupt. Everything we have and own can be taken from us. But you see, in heaven, nothing can be taken from us in the presence of God. 
Paul says along these same lines, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You see, that's where we're headed. Or listen to Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of the hall of faith, those people that have died and gone before us, Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the promises in this life, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. They embraced them. That means they believed that God would keep his word. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Wow, that's the same thing that Peter opened with. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And that city we just read about in Revelation 21 and 22. And he says in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, a mouthful. Do you see how already these first five verses, Peter has been just pouring out and pouring out and pouring out the blessings of salvation, the richness of what God has done for us in saving us, helping us understand before he ever starts talking about suffering that we need to understand that our life is not wrapped up in the here and now. Our life is destined for eternity. Our life is destined for the presence of God. We were not created for this environment and this world that we're living in. We're created to be in heaven with God. It says we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In John chapter 10, Jesus said these words, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. While I was with them, Jesus prayed in John 17, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, referring to Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The word kept here means a garrison, guarded, shielded. It's a military term. And Jude even says in a similar way in verse 24 of his epistle, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Do you see what God has done and what he is doing for you and me? He's doing everything in his power to make sure we get there, that when we get to heaven, you know, some people have made the analogy, hey man, we're just sliding in under the door before it closed, or we're sliding in with our, our garments on fire or something like that. Maybe some people will, I don't know. 
But the way this reads, it tells me that God is keeping us. And there are days, I have to confess, perhaps you do as well, where you just feel weak spiritually. Maybe you've missed a period of time of being in God's word and being in fellowship with him. And you know if you have any consistency with that, you feel strengthened and you feel encouraged and you feel like you've drawn near to God and you're connected to him. But when you miss that, don't you feel weak? You feel anemic? You feel parched? You feel dry? And, this is, and God realizes this, certainly, about life on this earth. And God help us to cling to the grace and the love and the mercy of God. That we would understand that what God has done and what he is doing for us is he's going to get us into heaven safely. We're going to get there not because of our efforts, but because of his work. You see, we do have faith and it's important for us to exercise our faith. We are kept by the power of God through faith. You see, our faith does play a part because we have to believe that these things are true. We have to believe that God has done this and that he is doing this. We do have a part in this, but our part is to believe. Our part is to trust in the word of God. In Colossians chapter, excuse me, Colossians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to these words. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Let me read that again. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Doesn't feel like it. But in light of eternity, it is a moment. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen... But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And just a few verses later, he penned those words, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Hope is what God is giving to us through the salvation that he has given to us. So here's the question for us, and I think that's all we have time for this morning. I, I knew it was ambitious to try to go for verse 12, but verse 5 is where we will end. In light of everything we've just talked about, is the world leaving its mark on me, or am I leaving his mark on the world? Because if these things are true, and they are and God is doing these things in us and for us, and he is. Then, like I said earlier, in terms of talking about meeting people and, you know, sort of encountering people who have clearly been saved and clearly been transformed and they have the joy of the Lord and the presence of God radiates in their life. You see, it's, that's not about personality. 
That has nothing to do with personality. That's everything to do with presence. The presence of God in my life and in your life. Pastor Mitch last week did an incredible job with Joshua chapter 24, where he said, looking at Joshua 24, 15 in particular, but uh, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And I think Peter is very much saying the same thing. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Because just in these first five verses alone are the benefits and the glories of what it what God gives us by trusting in him. You see, God prepares us for trials, which we're going to get to, by the foundation of the salvation he has given us, the hope that he has given us. You see, without hope, we could not endure the trials and the difficulties that we face. I'm sure we've all known people, and maybe there'll be some of us here today listening that we are in the middle of things that we never thought we would experience. But for the grace of God, but for the hope of God, but for the presence of God, but for the Holy Spirit, but for the richness of his salvation, which he has given to us, we could not endure. We would give up were it not for the goodness of God in our lives. So as we get to like verse 6 we're not going to get to it today in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials remember these people those who were dispersed they had to leave their homes they had to leave behind everything because they were being persecuted and they went hundreds and in some cases thousands of miles away miles away from their home because they were trying to find a place to live out their lives in peace free from persecution I find it interesting that all of those places that we showed on the map are in Turkey of all places, which today is one of the most gospel hostile places on the face of the planet. So you may be able to find some remote island or some remote corner of the earth where you can live in peace, but rest assured that this mortality and this life will in some way afflict us. You know, when we go to the doctor and we get the blood results back and things aren't good, you know, and, that, and we're kind of facing our mortality, aren't we? But we are not living for this life. We are living for eternity. We are living for the presence of God. We are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is so rich. The gift that God has given us is so amazing. And we need to see this because if we don't understand who we are in Christ, if we don't understand that our, our identity is in Christ, then when these things come, when these trials and difficulties and tests come into our lives, we will be shaken. We are not meant for this world. We are meant to be with him in heaven. And one day we will be, but in the meanwhile, as we're passing through, let us be bearers of light and bearers of hope, the hope that we have received. We want others to receive the same hope that has been given to us and promised to us in these first five verses here in First Peter. 
Amen. Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving to us your life, your hope, your word, this living hope that you've promised to us, our salvation, so great, so rich, so free. And Lord, all of these things that you've given to us are not just blessings for the future, but they are things to enable us to pass through this life without being marred and scarred by the disappointments of this life. Because this is not our final destination. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. Our investment is not here. Our investment is in heaven. Because that's where we will realize the full blessings of all these things that you have promised to us. And so many times in your word you say, if you persevere, if you continue in the faith. And so, Lord, we want to be people who persevere and who continue. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for what you've given to us. God, we bless your holy name. And as we take time this morning, as we close to just sing a song, I I pray that this song would just sort of affirm to us the good things that you have done for us and encourage us to look forward, to look ahead for this living hope that you've given to us, Lord. Lord, fill us up and bless us today as we've studied your word. Let it go with us. Let it encourage us in such a way, Lord, that we would be surprised by the good things that you've given to us. Cause us, Lord, when our minds might be a little melancholy or our minds might be in a place where we we think about the discouragements more than we think about the good things that you lie, that you have given to us that lie ahead for us. God, we look forward for that living hope. The things of this life, as we've already read, are light afflictions that are momentary. For we look not at the temporal, but we look at the eternal. God, help us to have that kind of perspective. We pray in Jesus' name.